Fear Itself is sponsored by Oto, the leading premium CBD brand. Oto has created the world's first non-alcoholic zero-sugar CBD bitters. With more people adopting a mindful approach to alcohol and drinking, Oto Bitters is the perfect functional alternative to help amplify social moments and enhance overall well-being. Just add three dashes to cocktails, juices, tonics or coffee. I personally love using these bitters in my coffee or juice in the morning. It makes me feel present and ready for the day ahead. Oto combines the antioxidant properties of more than 12 Himalayan botanicals with pure CBD from organically grown hemp, all expertly blended to create a delicious drink that helps promote calmness and contentment. Available at your favourite cocktail bars or from select Majestic stores and majestic.co.uk. I am Inge Solheim. I'm afraid of failing people. Welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with people about their personal stories around fear. In my experience, fear can be motivational, but it can also really hold me back, and I'm curious to understand this dynamic a bit better. How does fear show up? How do people try to hide it? How can we harness it? And what can we learn from it? My guest this week is Inga Solhim, one of the world's leading adventure guides who pioneers journeys in the most extreme environments on Earth. Inga is best known for leading the Walking with the Wounded expeditions to the North and South Poles, and he also helped Mark Pollock become the first blind man to race to the South Pole. I was interested to know how Inga prepares himself and others for physical and mental hardship and how he helps other people deal with their fears when he is guiding them. We talk about responding versus reacting, conquering childhood fears, the importance of curiosity and of tuning into a more positive channel in our heads in times of difficulty. Although this episode was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak, the topics we cover and the advice Inga gives still seems to ring true. I have known Inga for a while and I love how passionate he is about helping people to appreciate the outdoors, to discover themselves and to achieve their goals. Inga, hello. Hi. You're a man who's either on top of a mountain, in the middle of the wilderness or somewhere in the ocean. So um, I really appreciate that you're, that you're here. Thank you for sharing your fear of failing people. How does this translate in your life? Some people mean a lot to me and what they feel and, and how they are, it's very important to me. And uh, I have for many, many years, since I was very little, I've felt a responsibility for a lot of people around me. It's something that I have probably put on myself more than they have, but that is so um, important for my self-image and my self-respect and, and who I want to be that uh, if I feel that I'm failing people in some way it hurts and it's interesting because part of your job is actually to not fail people I guess it is I am responsible for people's safety and uh, more than just guiding people in the outdoors I also guide people on life journeys on uh, journeys of development self improvement and stuff and and I guess I need to I need to be conscious about my responsibility there as well mm. and I actually feel that um, 
it is important for me to be the the strong and um, and safe person around them. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And is there something that triggers this fear? Well, very few people manage to invoke this fear in me because the people who matter, there are a handful or few people who have that effect on me. But if I take on the responsibility for people, I give them a little bit of this power to invoke this fear in me. Uh, because when I take responsibility for, re- for people or if I get attached to someone, I automatically give them this power to... Mm. Yeah. And you've, you've told me before when we were discussing something else that you must not give people that power to make you feel that fear or to make you feel down in, in whatever way unless... Unless they are important. Yeah. One of the things we can do to, to take control of our own mental health and, and our emotions is to be conscious about who we give this power to. So we, as soon as possible, we should learn to regulate this um, effect that people and things have on us. So we give people and things the right weight that they deserve. And I'm not talking about earning this right. I'm talking about what is important and what is not. Um, If I came here 10 minutes late today, would you fear that I've forgotten it or didn't reach a place or that something had happened to me? Chances for something happening to me is very slim and uh, I'm not important. This is not important in the great scheme of things. So it should give you very little fear. But some people would get really stressed. And I think one of the most important things we should learn at at an early age is to give things, people and situations the weight that it deserves. Mm. And what were you like at an early age? Did you have this fear of failing people and perhaps yourself when you were younger or was that sort of developed with your career choices? No, I think I've, I've had that always. And through my interest in human psychology and through my interest in my inner life and, and how I feel and think, I have spent a lot of time learning about this and actually reducing that fear. So when I'm talking about this fear and it's not something that is a shadow over my life at all. It, I hardly ever feel it anymore. Mm. It used to be a strong and, and, and big thing and now it's a small thing that only happens a few times. And um, that's been my journey and it's also a very big th- part of my job is to understand fear understand risk, identifying the real risk and isolate the perceived risk and just deal with risk in a very rational manner. And through my different jobs and lessons and experiences I've had, I have become much better at uh, regulating my own response to the world and what's happening to me. Mm. So what would you say your response to it back then when it was perhaps overwhelming so to now in the beginning i think when i was a young young boy i was a lot of i had a lot of anger and uh, when i was a kid i i can't imagine that no now. it doesn't happen it's so calm yeah it, it hasn't happened for many years i don't I, I can't remember being angry the last 20 30 years uh, but i remember that i was an angry little boy sometimes because i felt frustrated i felt that the world was unfair, grew up in relatively suboptimal conditions with a 
dysfunctional family. And that frustration felt like a little bit of an anger inside. Mm. And I guess for the people around me, that manifested itself in some way. I was never violent, but I was, I, I could probably explode sometimes. Mm. Um, it's, I think it was those emotions that triggered the interest because I didn't want to be like that. And uh, I think around the age of uh, 13, 14, I started to meditate. I started reading books about, about meditation. And um, I think my journey through karate and kung fu also gave me some important lessons. I mean, you say you were from a dysfunctional family. Do you mean you were left on your own devices a bit in order to kind of like fend for yourself? Most of my childhood, I was responsible for myself and uh, nobody really gave me any boundaries. And that I had to make my own boundaries and I was stricter than most parents were. <laughs> I was stricter to myself mm. and I made rules and, and uh, I didn't have any talents like football or hand, handball or anything. So I found my talent, my passion. I found myself out in nature. I was lucky to grow up in a valley with beautiful mountains around and rafting rivers and canyons and caving and all sorts of things. And that's how I calibrated my courage, tested myself and failed mm. sometimes and stood up again and continued. And you said before that bringing people out to nature is the best way for them to meet their true selves and it strips away all the layers. Do you think you found that confidence from growing up in nature? I think I was really fortunate. I think you can find your confidence in yourself uh, and find yourself in many arenas. You don't have to grow up in a little valley with in a town of 2,000 500 inhabitants. You can you can do this anywhere, I think. But it helps because nature is a process arena that is very real and fair. Or it's not fair. There's no fairness in nature, but it's just action and consequence. Very simple. So nature gives you immediate feedback on who you are, and um, it's a great, to use a musical term, resonance uh, room for your thoughts and your feelings. Mm. Also, if you experience nature together with other people, you see them as they are in their true self. And that's how you learn about people. And so I think my curiosity was triggered because I felt it had an effect on me. I could also see what effect I had on other people in those surroundings. And what I, the effect I saw that was that I was making them feel safer because I was relatively competent out in nature, so they felt safer mm -hmm. and we could experience bigger, better things together. And then also I felt the effect other people had on me. All is so pure out there, I feel. Mm. I know you love nature as well and, and you venture into what we call nature. I have to remind people sometimes that we are nature and this connection that we feel is because we're part of it. And the disconnect we feel is that we have invited so many distracting factors into our lives that are unnecessary. Mm. Um, we're domesticated, we live complex life, complex social lives, and we surround ourselves with a lot of dead things, concrete walls and pavements and tube stations and all sorts of things. But we are nature as much as a deer or a fungus or anything else. Mm. And from that, I suppose you've probably witnessed the people that you're guiding and taking on these expeditions, they've had to face layers of themselves and 
probably a big layer is fear. What do you do when people come across that in themselves? Uh, if if we're going on expeditions, I prepare people as good as I can. If we're on, if we're just on a like a little adventure or on a day trip or something, I try to observe how people are, their body language, how they speak, what they do, and then from there be ahead of any fear and uh, invite people to talk about it so that we can dissect it and really find out what it is. Is it a real fear or is it invented? Is it some phobia that they have from before? Or are they just out of their comfort zone and feeling things that are not based on any fear? It's just like they're out of their normal setting and that it makes them restless or afraid or something. Mm -hmm. So that's in a normal, like a day trip or something. If we go on expeditions, I have to prepare people really well. So I take them on training trips. We have conscious conversations about the things that they will face and and I tell them about the different kinds of feelings and fears and, and things that will happen during the expedition. I cover more things than probably will happen, but just to be safe, I want them to be able to visualize and prepare themselves mentally for these things. So let's say they experience fear or if they get cold and they feel pain and stuff and or they feel homesick or something they will think that oh this is what Inge talked about when we were on that training trip and now it's happening and he said it wasn't dangerous it was normal probably everyone else feels it so I'll talk to Inge about it mm. and and then suddenly it's not disabling or painful anymore and um, that's part of my job to prepare people for what they're going to encounter. Yeah. So I have this really simple technique to prepare people for hardship is to push them so hard during training that they almost can't make it. So the people who survive in the sense that they still want to do it after that training, mm -hmm. they are sort of selected in a sense that they are mentally prepared for what's going to happen. Mm. Training sessions with me are sometimes harder than the real expedition. And do some people just give up when they like, Yeah, some people give this. up. Some people give up either because they identify that this is not something that they're physically able to do or it's too much for them mentally. Other people, they had very shallow motivation when we started. So maybe some outer motivation for doing it, bragging rights or something else. And that doesn't survive a hard expedition or a hard training. So only the people with deep inner motivation for doing something will go through the hard training that I push them through. Mm, that's yeah. really so it's very, very rare that people collapse or pull out during an expedition. I avoid that by pushing them hard before. Mm. And I'm assuming people experience the fear whilst on the expedition so differently from each other. They have a different reaction. There are different ways of showing it, but it's quite uh, human beings are quite simple. We have we have a set of a little menu of reactions and fears and feelings. The symptoms and the way that we show them or how we react to them is different, mm. and that's social upbringing, examples you've seen before, traumas that you've been through, or things that have formed you. Like we're very different that way, but the repertoire, the emotional repertoire of a human being is quite quite simple and very few things 
fight, flight, freeze, happiness, joy. Yeah. So you facilitate journeys for people with physical and mental barriers, and you obviously have to deal with a lot of unforeseen circumstances. Does the pressure of that ever get too much? I have understood that I can't win everyone. I can't be right for everyone. So sometimes my way of doing things is not right for someone. Someone might not like it. Uh, some people I don't understand, so I am using the wrong recipe or the wrong methods on them, so I'm failing that way. Um, I try to learn and be relatively neutral during the process so that I don't commit to a way of doing things, but try to learn on the job. But uh, it's difficult sometimes. And um, I've identified a few human traits and the human personalities that I don't go well with. <laughs> and then, mm. like negative people, pessimists, um, people who are um, blaming other people or blaming circumstances. So people who come up, up with excuses and explanations for everything instead of owning their their failures or success themselves. They blame and excuse and I don't like that. I am allergic to it. Mm. <laughs> I know that it's a human trait, but I think maybe because I had to fight that urge when I was a kid, I uh, think I developed a kind of a resistance or a, I don't like it. And uh, yeah. Maybe it's because I saw it in myself when I was a kid. Mm. It took me years to shave that off. No excuses, no explanations, just do better. That's what I told myself. That's maybe why I don't like it in other people. Mm. <laughs> I've heard you once say that your best isn't enough. And I wanted to ask you why, because a lot of people would disagree and say, just do your best. Mm. And that's all that anyone can ask. I, I, think that's a, I think that's a nice way of bringing up kids to just tell them when they go to school, when they are in football or ballet practice that, you did your best. It's good enough. I, I like that. And I think that's in that setting, it's the right thing to say. But if you want to do something extraordinary, if something is very important, doing your best is not enough. You have to do what is required. And my uh, your, your ex-prime minister a long time ago, Winston Churchill, he said, sometimes doing your best is not enough. You have to do what is required. And from that, I read that if you focus on doing what is necessary, you're not limited by what you think you can do. You just do what it takes. And that's how I would like to be as well. I focus on the job. A lot of people or most people have no clue what their potential is because they never tested the limits. So if you aim for what you think you can do and what you think is your best, you will completely undershoot your potential. And in, in hardship, if you want to reach a, a mountaintop, if you want to do anything extraordinary, ordinary effort is not enough. Then you would just be ordinary. And of course, that's good enough for some people sometimes, for everyone sometimes, but that's not good enough for me. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because I feel a lot of why perhaps people don't push their boundaries is because of fear, is because they're scared. I think fear can be very distracting and I think it can distract us from being able to reach our full potential. Yes, I agree. And I've seen it a lot in myself and other people around me that we have different kinds of fear. People have different fears. And uh, it's a little bit about our 
past and our history, what what we are comfortable with and uncomfortable with. And we have arenas that are, uh, for me, for example, I have great tolerance for physical risk. So I have le- very little fear of hurting myself and feel pain. I have very little fear of um, social risk and pain. And uh, now, finally, I have little fear of emotional pain. When I was little, I had great fear of emotional pain. I was afraid of letting other people down. I was afraid of falling in love. I was afraid of different things. And only by testing and experiencing this and pushing my own comfort zones on these arenas, I have managed to expand my tolerance of pain on these arenas. And um, I think everyone has different things that they're comfortable with. And, and I think in our life, we, we, I think we get a richer and better life and if we test these things and we try to expand our comfort zone on many arenas. If you're super comfortable doing a speech for 5,000 people, but you're afraid of falling in love, maybe that's the arena you should challenge and learn and get to know yourself better. And would you say that's how you've learnt to become, if you like, fearless? Yeah, I think confronting my fears have been a big part of my life. My my grown-up adult life, I've been confronting my fears. And from that, trying to respond to the world in a relevant matter, what's really happening, instead of what I fear and what I want, try to see the world as it is and respond to it instead of react to it. Uh, when uh, around the time where I was I was going to be a father, I was a father at a very young age. <laughs> I, yeah, I was yeah. 19. And um, before I became a father, I sort of started analyzing my own life and tried to see myself as a father and what kind of father did I want to become and be and, and uh, what kind of experience did I want to and upbringing and how would I want my daughter to experience the world and me? And from that, I had to I had to sort of see myself a little bit from the outside and try to change a few things. And one of the biggest and most disabling emotions I had that time was bitterness. I was bitter uh, about my own childhood. And that bitterness was an uh, energy consuming. It was an energy leak in my life. And... Uh, I also, not externally maybe, but internally I excused and explained my life and my failures and my situation with my childhood. I had a really like suboptimal start, not compared to a lot of other people, but in a very rich and like spoiled country like Norway, not having enough food or the right clothes or clothes in enough, not having what other people had was a bit painful sometimes. And I took that bitterness with me until just before Marion was born, my daughter. But I I really, with the help of good friends and conscious conversations and a really hard, (laughs) hard work on myself, I managed to get rid of that bitterness. So getting rid of that released a lot of energy and, and it changed my focus and the way that I saw life and myself. Mm. And then later in life, I 
I had therapy. I I uh, I was a stockbroker for a while, and with with that money and with with like the privileged life I had, I I sort of I wanted to learn more about myself. So I contacted through some recommendation. I contacted an amazing psychologist, and she was great help for me to learn more about myself and start this journey of discovery, where she gave me techniques. She she helped me identify the values that I was moving towards and the values I was moving away from and and why and mm. yeah I understood myself better I think life I hope life is a constant journey of discovery and self-improvement and uh, sometimes we are ahead and we feel that oh wow this is interesting life is good and and sometimes we're behind and and life sucks mm. And I think it takes, from from what I'm getting from you, it actually takes for someone to take that responsibility for themselves and own it. I think curiosity saved me. A curiosity about what happens inside a human being, what happens inside of me when we're confronted with fear or hunger or emotional pain or whatever it is. And, and that curiosity made me look at my feelings from the outside and... and uh, learning about them, reading books and observing people and myself in different situations. And we human beings are very simple. We can have one chain of thoughts at the, at the time. And if, if I consciously direct my chain of thoughts and my analysis or my curiosity on a, like a positive, forward-driven thing, you know, I can't, I can't be analyzing a situation and at the same time be scared or... Uh, Better or <laughs> mm. yeah, so I choose the I choose to activate my executive mindset in difficult situations instead of um, falling back into fight, flight, or freeze. And that's a technique in the beginning, and it becomes a lifestyle and a personality trait after a while. But the technique is it, it's worth learning the techniques, being here and now, being present. Uh, controlling your breath and and things like that when if you if you're the first person to a car accident or you need to help someone who's fallen over on the tube station or you have you're in a really difficult argument or a, a very important um, interview for a new job there are many different situations where you should try to balance yourself and be as good as you can be and and be your best when things are at their worst and that's that's something I'm re- very, very interested in. And that interest makes me constantly learning about it. Mm. Be your best when things are difficult because anyone can show their best side in a night, like when blue skies, wind in your back, everyone's happy about you and, and doing what you like. But being your best when things are difficult, that's the thing that should really be an interesting journey for people. And sometimes I manage to to do that and other times I'm not good at it <laughs> and and especially when things around my daughter or people that I love like um, a few years ago I experienced like proper heartache that was a really learning uh, period for me where I discovered a lot of things in myself and the good thing that I derive out of difficulty is um, one that I'm alive I feel alive from both pain and pleasure makes me feel alive and also gratitude I feel a lot of gratitude lately (laughs) for things that I have and things that I've felt and the journey I'm on 
So you changed careers from working in finance to being an explorer. Was that change difficult? Uh, for, for me, it was easy because when I felt that the time was right, I, I just made the decision. I think I have been exposed to a lot of change in my life and instead of feeling threatened by it or disabled by it, I, I've started to embrace change and I'm, I, I face it with uh, expectation instead of fear, with uh, a sense of um, excitement instead of fear. I choose to interpret it in myself and in my brain as something exciting and positive. When I'm standing on a cliff edge, ready to jump, uh, like to do a base jump, I can choose to tune in on the fear or the expectation, like how, what will this feel like? And that curiosity and like that excitement is a positive one. If I mm. tuned in on the fear, it would be a negative experience. But it's the same signals that goes to my brain. I, I still get goosebumps. I still get, feel the chill down my back, but like, mm, yes. So you do feel the fear. It's not like you don't. I just interpret it differently, I think, mm. in different situations. Change is good. Like I, I learned that from Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> Change is good. And I think sometimes I find the feeling of fear and the feeling of excitement are very, very close. Very. And as you say, if somehow we can tune into the excitement, especially in your in your area of work, I, I think we all have uh, ex, uh, we all have situations where we can actually make conscious decisions on what to tune in on. So a lot of it is about inner dialogue. How do you speak to yourself? What do you say to yourself in a difficult situation or any situation? And that determines how you experience the world, how you speak to yourself, what you tell yourself, the narrative that you create. Because we see the world as we are, not as it is. And so I choose to, I choose to see myself as a transceiver, as an old fashioned word, as a receiver and transmitter. It's like a radio yeah. transceiver. <laughs> And I see that we have different dials. We can tune in and we can adjust things. If, if it's a lot of noise, we can tune the dial a little bit to the side and then get rid of the noise. If we don't like the channel uh, that's coming in, if we don't like the music, we can change to a different channel. And that's how I see my brain as well. And constantly not doing 180 degree turns or revolutions but tuning here and there every day being curious about if i do this well, how do i respond to that what happens inside of me what effect do i have on other people if i do that that's the journey and it's a lifelong one i think and that's uh, i think the most exciting part of my life is that constant tuning sometimes i completely fail and mess up and other <laughs> times i'm really good at it mm. Inga, I know you get asked this a lot, but it is a really amazing, inspiring story. It's the story with Mark Pollock, who was the first blind person ever to ski the North Pole. South Pole. South Pole, Same, sorry. same, but different. Poles apart. Uh, this was a really important moment for you, but you must have faced so many challenges along the way. Uh, I think Mark Pollock faced the most challenges. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I was doing something that I've done before, but... You know, what people call disabilities is sometimes an asset for other people, you know, and 
I before that expedition in 2008, I've already led a lot of trips with so-called disabled people. What I find is that one of the things that I had to change in myself is that I saw disabled people as a as a group of very conform group of people with similar challenges, but they are as different as all of us. And um, the motivation that Mark Pollock had for doing what he did. Uh, he had been blind for 10 years when, when I met him, or almost 10 years, and he wanted to celebrate this 10-year anniversary by skiing to the South Pole, something that is too hard for most able-bodied people. And he was determined, and he was willing to do what it takes. He also had great help from his friend, Simon. And uh, I think that that whole journey for me was uh, a milestone because... I learned a lot about Mark and his challenges, but I also learned a lot about myself because I had to push him and his teammate a lot during that trip. And I was really close to how much I could push them. I had tons of physical surplus capacity, but they were on the limit. But I had promised them to get them to the South Pole so I had to push them and try to find that balance between a cuddly talk <laughs> and just saying that, get your ass off the ground and just keep walking. And, and it was really interesting to, and, and I consciously chose to push hard and say, stop feeling sorry for yourself. This is what we decided to do and you do what it takes. And, and you know, Mark, he fell over about a thousand times, I think, and that brave strong man stood up again kept walking and it it was such an inspiration for me and and you know i don't know he's he didn't see it but i teared up and probably cried a little bit when we reached the south pole he's an extraordinary man very inspirational and uh, mark had an accident the year after we skied to the south pole where he he um, fell down of a out of a window and got paralyzed from the belly button and down, and uh, that didn't make life easier. But he wow. he recovered after months in hospital and had to learn everything again. And um, he's still the most inspirational guy I know. But do you think that was the most challenging expedition you've gone on? I think it's one of the most important expeditions for me. I think the most physically and mentally most challenging expedition I did was... We, when we recreated the, the race to the South Pole in 2005, uh, it was a really long ski trip, and I, I skied uh, for 62 days in a row, and that was physically and mentally hard to manage my energy and my everything mm. for 62 days and re-motivate re myself every day. All of these things, all of these experiences are, are important. They're the part of the journey, and you learn a little bit every day and, and on every expedition you learn new things about yourself and how do you in those times re-motivate yourself well with uh, walking with the wounded or Mark Pollock and uh, beyond boundaries and expeditions where I see people without limbs or blind people or people with severe PTSD or things like that my motivation is my responsibility for their safety and for um, and I also feel that it's really purposeful it's like a meaningful expedition 
where I, I enable or I facilitate this journey for other people. It's, it's meaningful. And I think that's a very important factor, that dr a drive for people. And it's an important thing for all human beings to find meaningful existence and, and purpose. And these expeditions make me feel that I deserve my place on this planet and the air, the air that I breathe together with other important things like being a father and mm. yeah. and the people that you're guiding when they finish that journey do you see a massive change in them? Very often I see a big change in people I see a deeper confidence some people have learned important things about themselves they come out of it with a different view of life a lot of these people have been through hardship before and that has they've grown from on that but I think many of these nature experiences and team experiences in nature are quite powerful and I see a lot of change in people and uh, positive change as a leader if you come across a frightening situation how do you deal with that do you just stay calm um, through my journey and uh, the things that I've experienced, I think my reaction or my response to difficult situation has changed. And uh, hardly ever do I feel that a situation is frightening in the moment because it sort of triggers something in me that I'm just uh, sharpens my focus and my attention to the job and what is necessary to do now. I sometimes, when I analyze it and debrief or or go to bed after something like that has been potentially dangerous or frightening, I sometimes understand uh, or, or relate to the risk in a different way. In a few situations, I have been beating myself up for why I put myself or my team or my group in that situation. But yeah my default reaction to a difficult situation is not fear it's focus you know we all human beings we fall into thought and behavior patterns and I think my thought and behavior patterns are very constructive now compared to when I was 15 years old they are focused and, and it's like when things get really hectic it feels like time is slowing down for me and that's uh, that is a result of training. It's like if you speak to a tennis player, when you ask him, well, the game is so fast, or uh, even squash, squash is faster, you know. And I think, yeah, it's fast for us, but for them who who have been doing this for years and trained, and squash is not that fast, or it's it's less fast than for me, for example. I'm useless at squash, but I'm so impressed by squash players, and I. I'm impressed by Formula One drivers and um, downhill skiers and all sorts of people who are at the top of their game. When it comes to dealing with risk and difficult situations in nature or also in other parts of life, I am a top athlete. I'm a crap driver. I haven't driven a Formula One car. I'm not good in tennis, but in what I do, I am an athlete mm. and I have trained and focused and, and my comfort zone here has been expanded all through my life. 
It seems like what you're saying, what you've been saying in this conversation, a lot of it is to do with um, reaction versus response. I think the journey I've been through where I've tried to consciously respond to the world instead of react to it respond in a relevant matter to what's really happening and see the world as honestly I, I, I don't know if you've seen the matrix but yeah, yeah I choose, yeah, the, no, I I choose the red pill not the blue pill mm. I choose reality and not the truth you know I don't own the truth I don't know the truth but I, I try to seek facts and reality and not try to paint blurry like a, a beautiful picture of the reality I try to respond to what's really happening and very often, if you if you relate to reality, the world is less frightening than if you react to things. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not afraid of much. I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic about how we can solve the climate crisis. I'm optimistic about uh, the future for for young people. I think people now growing up are smarter and and wiser than. They were 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, there's so many things that I'm optimistic about. And it's not because, it's actually because I, I look at things as they are and I'm mm -hmm. not influenced by media pressure or, or narratives that are being pushed on me. It's nice that you say that you're positive about the climate crisis because, you know, a lot of people would say our planet is currently in a state of crisis. Yeah, I think I relate to that in the same way as any other crisis or difficult situations. I look at what we have, the facts, and I identify the problem, <laughs> and then I focus on the solutions. Being paralyzed by fear doesn't help, so I avoid that, I don't do that. Uh, being negative doesn't help, so I avoid that. Try to be realistic and try to work on the things that I can actually control. I can control my consumption, I can use my uh, consumer power to buy services and, and goods from people or, or suppliers that are sustainable and conscious and fair. I can use my voting rights. I can influence my sphere around me to do bigger, better things for, for the future. I can try to help people seek knowledge and um, information that can make them more conscious. So we stop uh, stop electing bad leaders like you do in this country and my country and the U.S. We like we have to elect better leaders. Being optimistic and solution oriented is one of the things that I do. One of the most common questions when I, uh, when people hear what I do for a living is like, "Oh, you must have seen so many devastating effects of climate change and stuff," and like, and you must be so freaked out by it. And no, no, I'm not. There are so many things we can do every day, and I think recycling is one of them. Like uh, the UK where we are now is a, almost like a third world country when it comes to recycling. You still have landfills here. You still burn trash and, and not use the energy or the materials that can be used from recycling. Sweden, Norway has come. We did things 30 years ago that should have been done here as well. It's like bottle recycling, for example. Mm. Sweden have... 103% recycling now of plastic and trash. They import trash and they make energy and materials out of it. It's so easy for a civilized country like the UK to do that, but you don't have brave enough politicians and you have too many interest groups and lobby groups that are holding back progress. 
So you have to elect better leaders. Mm. We have to own the good things and the bad things that happen in our life. Yeah. And taking personal social responsibility is the key. Because that will, if we move towards those values, the things that be, we believe in, and we move away from the bad things, we will make the right choices when it comes to buying things or who we elect for leaders and what suppliers we choose. And, and you know, if we stop buying something from one of the world's leading suppliers because they're not conscious or sustainable, or if they're not fair, they will go out of business or they will have to change. We can force massive international companies to change. Mm. And that's powerful. Yeah, we're all powerful. <laughs> Thank you, Inga. I always ask everyone I chat to uh, on my podcast, this is... Uh, the first is the place that you, which for you is actually an interesting question because you have been to so many different places. And But the place that you would go to, and that could be a physical place or in your imagination, where you go to when you're having fearful, not so happy thoughts. Hmm. I, I've been very fortunate to meet some extraordinary people in my life that are safe and strong and wise and um, when I have a difficult situation, I either refer back to a, a similar experience that I've had where I try to derive some wisdom out of that, or I think about some of the people I look up to, what would they have done in my situation, and, um, and that helps me a lot. So it's not a physical place, mm. <laughs> but it's a mental place. Yeah, I do that, actually. I think someone who inspires me in my life and if I'm in a hard situation I do think what would this person do how would this person react to this and then I copy it yeah. and actually it really works it works <laughs> uh, and what is the song or piece of music that you go to I'm very fortunate to have a musician in my family my daughter is oh, a, yes, yeah my is. daughter is a singer songwriter and I love her music and um, I, I love the um, vulnerability and the in the voice and um, I love the way she writes what's her name my daughter's name is Marion uh, she's currently living in Cork in Ireland and yeah she's my favorite human being on the planet wow you did actually I read somewhere that you said uh, my daughter is brave enough to live her dreams which is beautiful it is beautiful and she has been through some phases as well which is uh, exciting and scary for me to observe and and uh, I am very proud of her and I am lucky to be around to see the growth that she's going through and, uh, and I wish the world was uh, led by brave young girls instead of old men in suits. And what would you do if you were not afraid, if fear did not exist? I would probably miss it. I would miss fear because that sense of fear or excitement or butterflies and um, goosebumps or chills, or, that is an important part of life. I think the world now is obsessed with numbing pain and avoiding fear and, uh, and having comfortable lives. There's no progress in comfort. There's no progress in comfortable. There's no learning in a world that is not challenging or, or difficult. 
I think we should embrace the good days and the bad days. Inga, this has been so unbelievably inspiring, as I knew it would be. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Just for the listeners, how can people find you? I just got an agent a little while back and and they pushed me to be more active on social media. So I'm reluctantly posting more on Instagram and try to share inspirational things there and 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 try to engage with people on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I have a little account in my name. <laughs> it's great. I follow you. Yeah, thank you. I follow you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for listening to Fear Itself. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be hugely appreciated if you could subscribe on your favorite podcast app and maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. You can also find me on Instagram at CressidaBonus. I'd like to give a special thanks to the producer and editor Hannah Varrell, James and Kazra at One Fine Play for their fantastic studio space, and Malt Martin for his beautiful music. Tune in next week when I will be chatting to another great guest about all things fear. Thanks, guys, and see you next week. Mm